Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logarithm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logarithm provides security made smarter. How much confidence do you have in your security program? TrustedSec is a global information security consulting firm created by Dave Kennedy with some of the industry's most respected professionals. Their team works collaboratively with your company to improve security regardless of its current maturity level. TrustedSec offers an ever-growing list of customized services including red and purple teaming, software and hardware security, incident response, PCI, and risk and maturity assessments. You can visit trustedsec.com forward slash security weekly to learn how TrustedSec can become an extension of your team. Welcome back to Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by my co-host, Paul Asadorian. RSA Conference 2019 is the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity data, innovation, and thought leadership. From March 4th to 8th, San Francisco will come alive with cybersecurity's brightest minds as they gather together to discuss the industry's newest developments. Go to rsaconference.com forward slash security weekly dash us 19 to register now using the disc discount code 5u9swfd to receive a hundred dollars off your conference pass all right paul let's dig into some leadership articles absolutely where do you want to start matt <clears throat> well the, the first challenge I had was most of the articles were all about New Year's resolutions. And oh. so I skipped all of them. Um, <laughs> I don't do New Year's resolutions, um, but every article is like, here's how you can keep your New Year's resolution. So I just, so people don't worry, no New Year's resolutions in the news articles this week. Yeah. How about like I having wanted- having goals and objectives? regardless of what year it is or when the year rolls over. That's kind of my thinking, man. I don't know why people get hung up on the calendar year so much. I don't know. Maybe it's because we eat too much over the holidays yes. and we feel guilty and therefore we need to put some goals in place mm-hmm. to get us back on track. I, I don't know, but I just, I don't do it. But so many articles, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. I wanted to start with um, leading organizational change through empathy and yes. I, I read this article and, and took some notes off of this one because I think it's interesting, right? A lot of organizations are going through changes, um, whether it's digital transformation, changing the way the business is. Even at Security Weekly, we're, we're changing a little bit, right? You know, as, as I've come on and you and I've been talking, Paul, we're making some organizational changes. So I thought this was a really good article for me personally to read, knowing that you know, the employees might be a little concerned with some of the changes we might make. Sure. And and so some good tips here um, for people who are going through an organizational change for leaders. Uh, and it really starts with um, profiling your audience and, and understanding your employees, right? What do they feel? What do they think? Um, trying to get some of that feedback because when you make these announcements, some people are going to feel differently. Some people mm-hmm. will be excited, but other people might be completely fearful of what's coming. So that was the first I yeah. tip that I thought and was. You know what's interesting? And it, it ties back to uh, our interview with Damon, uh, phone boy from last Thursday. And he's worked at Checkpoint Technologies for about 20 years. And 
when he talked, and so I asked him the, the hard question, right? And Matt, you and I both worked for security vendors in the past. And I'm like, how do you facilitate the communication between development, marketing, and sales, right? Which is one of the hardest things, as you know, Matt, in any software company, especially, that's really hard. And we talked about empathy. And I think it's easier to empathize if you've held those other roles, maybe even at different organizations. That's where I think you really gain an advantage of having empathy to really understand where someone's coming from in their perspective is to have had that perspective in the past. I think that's also why we say when you're going to get into security, before you do that, work a help desk, work a sysadmin job, you know, work in sales or whatever. So you have that perspective of what their challenges and struggles are makes it a lot easier to have that empathy. Now, when you get into different relationships, you can't have, have, have held every position in the planet, right? So that makes it more right. difficult. But specific to your career, you can you know, have held maybe some of those positions before. Take yourself back to those times when you were working a help desk or when you were in sales, right? And that really does help for me. Yeah, it, I agree with you. And the second tip here is the the other one that I, I liked, and we talked about this a little bit on the last segment, and that is tell people what to expect. Be transparent. See, the reason people get nervous or, or fearful is because sometimes executives aren't willing to really tell them what to expect. And, and so they're like, well, if you're not giving me the information, does that mean my job's changing? Am I losing my right. job? And this article talks about being transparent and really being direct. Um, most organizations sometimes aren't comfortable doing that, mm. but the, the surveys show that the more companies that are very open and honest and transparent about these changes, the more comfortable the employees are when that communication is over. And I think that's really important, not only for an organizational change, but just in general, just in your general leadership life. This mm -hmm. transparency, I think, is really good yes. um, to have. And, and I, I think what I love about working with Matt is we're both very transparent like that. So we work really well together in that aspect, as well as many others. The other thing that's interesting is Matt's also been a founder. So when Matt works with me, I can tell that Matt has been a founder before. And when we work with founders of some of our sponsors or other companies that we're helping, the fact that both Matt and I have been founders or our founders, you know, I'm still uh, one of the founders for Active Countermeasures, we get that perspective. Right. And that's super important, especially in that role, too, to understand everything that the founder is going through, because it's fast and furious. Fast and furious. And the last one, involve everyone at all levels. It doesn't matter at what level of the organization mm. you're in. You want to involve all of them in these changes and getting feedback on these changes, whether it's it's the lowest level sysadmins all the way up through uh, the different ranks. You know, right before the holidays, Paul, right, we set down with everybody mm -hmm. and kind of laid out some of the changes we were making for 2019 at security weekly everybody was there right very transparent but mm -hmm. also engaging all those all everybody in the organization that way you you if people have questions or concerns or thoughts they can all engage at that time and i think it's important to make sure we're including everybody uh in these changes um good tip absolutely the second article. I, I love this one because I just went through this at uh, the Cloud Security Alliance um, back in December. And it's how to moderate a panel discussion. 
And the reason I say this is a lot of conferences do panel discussions. You bring up some experts, you set them in a chair, you have a moderator, and the moder- the panel can go one of two directions. It goes really, really well, or it goes really, really bad. Agreed. <laughs> and it's There's all not much based middle on ground. the moderator. Yep, I agree. Not much middle ground. I, I think I can summarize this mod- this article um, with... If you are the moderator, moderate it from the audience perspective, not from the panelist perspective, not from the moderator's perspective. You always have to keep the audience perspective front and center when you're moderating. And, and it's exactly. really all the rest of it kind of falls in place if you keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, there's look, you need to prep your panelists on yeah, the absolutely. topic and kind of the outline. Mm-hmm. But you have to realize that as the panel is going, you have to think about the what the audience is expecting. And and there's two clear examples that they kind of talk about in this article that I think are really important for moderators to understand. One is the panelist that goes off on a monologue Mm -hmm. and how do you cut him off? Because the audience doesn't want to hear him Mm -hmm. just go off on a monologue by himself, Mm -hmm. right? So that's one piece that the audience doesn't really want to hear. They want to hear that interaction. And then the second piece is going deeper, Right, asking the follow-up question. See, when we're sitting in the audience watching a panel and a topic comes up, we want you to actually ask the follow-up question and go a little deeper into that topic because we'll get more value Mm -hmm. out of that versus staying at this higher level outline without getting into the details. You've got experts sitting on stage with you, leverage their expertise and get that deep dive and really give the audience that additional information that they're looking for because that's what I've feel when I'm sitting there going, well, God, I wish you would ask that question. Yeah. And I think the difference between a good moderator and a great moderator is uh, above and beyond this article of doing your prep work. A great moderator knows all of your experts on the panel and what they're experts in and has done the research. And a great moderator knows their audience and knows what their audience wants to hear as well. If you can read this article and then add those two things, you can go from good to great when you moderate any discussion. Exactly. Yep. So good tips for anybody who's got to go out and moderate a panel. Absolutely. Yeah. This next article I thought was good uh, also because, you know, this inbox thing for me, I, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an email user where if I have work to do, it's in my inbox. And sometimes that inbox gets really, really long. So this next article talks about how an individual at Google keeps basically an empty inbox. And Again, I think there's some good tips in here. Some of them I won't use. I am a very, um, I'm very specific with my emails. If I'm done with an email, I file it. If it's in my inbox, I need to do something about it, whether follow up or not. But he gives you a couple good tips here on how to deal with some of that. Yeah, I, I really, and in fact, I did this during the break. I love the tip of keeping mailing list out of your inbox and creating some simple filters that if the from and the to match, that's obviously a mailing list. I like immediately went there and did that because I'm like, that's great. And <clears throat> I think for our roles here at Security Weekly, it's different from other roles. If I were a security analyst working for an organization, I would treat mailing lists very differently than I do as founder and CTO of Security Weekly. I have to process some of those mailing lists, right? I got to see, 
are there sponsors or potential sponsors who I need to read their mailing list to maybe take an action or have a follow up or, you know, other types of mailing lists. So I do need to see that. However, it does very much clutter your inbox. I think we have to do a lot more kind of filtering and process management for our inboxes and some things. If I was a security analyst, I'd be like, yeah, I can file that stuff. I can go read it later whenever I have time or whatever, right? But some of it, like, for example, for us, uh, public relations, we get lots of emails. Now, Matt, I forwarded you one last week, right? But that was one yeah. out of maybe 30 or 40 that I thought was worthy of you and I actually having a discussion about in any capacity. So, you know, that can get tricky, but I love that that tip of uh, getting them out of your inbox. I also, I've played around with the multiple inbox thing, right? The waiting and, uh, you know, follow up and that kind of thing. I, it doesn't work for me. I think one thing that I would add on above this tool is if you're overusing email to track tasks, you need some other type of system uh, to do that. And I think we're always, at least here at Security Weekly, partly because I hate email so much, I think is fuel some of it, um, looking for those other tools to file it in, right? If it's task related, we need some place to put that. If it's documentation related, we need some place to put that. If it's sales related, for us, it belongs in HubSpot, right? So uh, finding those other systems and using them, while it sounds easy, is very much a, a project. Like there's a project to get you know, your project management thing in place, right? Um, but once you've done that, I think very strategically, email becomes a lot less mission critical for certain tasks that you do, like sales is a great example, right? Get that stuff on the HubSpot. HubSpot and Salesforce as well, right? All have inbox integrations. That's great. Um, and I've actually been looking at, Matt, based on our, our Monday morning uh, meetings that we have here at Security Weekly, some ways to track documentation and some ways to do project management. And you know, I'd love to hear from the audience about what works for you. There was actually an article that I found um, that I can actually put in the, the show notes, Matt, um, that talked about some of the founders uh, and executives from other companies uh, and what they use, what they use mm. for documentation and, and, so, and tracking projects. T-Wiki was one that was mentioned. Uh, Asana, which I had not heard of before, which actually looks pretty slick. I recently started testing out Evernote again. I haven't used it in probably over 10 years. I'm working on that again. Confluence is always one that comes with. That's an Atlassian. Is that Atlassian makes Confluence or no? Um, yeah, I think that isn't that the one that, yeah, with Jira and Confluence. I think it is Atlassian, all yes. under yep. Atlassian. Yeah, yeah Jira so. and, and Confluence. Um, GitHub's Wiki was another suggestion. Uh, Basecamp. Now, the one that I don't like a suggestion for is Google Drive. I just think it's way, we were just talking about that this morning. Google Drive is great. Don't get me wrong. Having all of my office productivity tools in one place, and my documents in one place and share is great, but the organization sucks. Trying to find things and keep track of things in Drive is a horrible experience. Now, maybe there might be add-ons for Drive that make it better. I don't like it for that reason because it just becomes one gigantic store where things go to get lost, right? And you do eventually find them. But uh, that one I didn't like. So I'm going to be checking out some of those other tools. We were just talking about Rike, which was another tool we used, uh, used to use. It wasn't the right tool for us. It might work for other people. So you know, keep in mind that you know, different strokes for different folks. But Yeah, and it depends on which 
role in the organization you are. Yep. Um, you know, salespeople are going to tend to to go to the CRM tools and in their inbox and, and email, where developers are going to tend towards wikis and or yep. ticket oh, tracking yeah. systems. And so I like um, different. Yeah. I like GitHub's uh, ticket tracking. We just started using that for our own internal software. So far, so good. Both Wyatt and I are Wyatt's our developer. I, we're really liking it so far, and it's really helping. And it's included. It's free. I mean, that's the great part. Is I mean, you can. You can start to break the bank, Matt. I mean, when I talk about budgeting, right, for any company, you can start breaking the bank. $10 per user per application you're using starts to add up really fast. And that's a bill that comes every month. Uh, And I think this is the right show to talk about some, you know, budgeting and the business aspect of it. You You can start, like, breaking your budget if you're using all of these tools. So I think it's a balance, just like we talked about threat intelligence, having some paid, having some free, right? The same thing with your productivity tools. What are you going to bring in in-house and maybe use open source? TWiki is one you can use, bring in in-house. Now there's a cost and maintenance associated with that, but it's not a hard bill that's coming every month, right? So I think you've got to, as a business leader, make you know the right decision, uh, balancing the budget and uh, balancing what's also free as well. Yes. Um, of these tips, by the way, um, I can't get it to zero. I, yeah. I have mailing lists because that's how I get my news every morning. I, yeah, I need I my Owler update. Right. I need my feeds, right? Yep. So I can't I can't pull them out of my inbox. It's part of daily life for me. But I do like the archiving and the moving of stuff. That keeps my inbox manageable, but I will never get it to empty. It's just impossible for me, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Works for me. All right, next one. So now we're going to start to get into kind of some of the activities as we start to get into 2019. The first article was um, the three things CIOs lose sleep over. And I wanted to bring this one up because it it brings in some very good um, aspects of security and governance and compliance that I think are important for leaders to understand. And the the first one is avoid a fear-based approach to compliance. Wholeheartedly agree. we tend in the industry to use compliance as the hammer to get budget. And we use it more on a fear tactic than on an understanding of what is the impact of compliance on our organization? What are the things we need to do to be in compliance? And, and I think the, the thing I, I, I like about this article, it talks about compliance in a few different places here, is compliance is a necessary component But if we use it as a fear tactic and we only focus on the compliance aspects, sometimes we lose the bigger picture of what it means to build a holistic security program. We kind of check the box. And I have been a big believer for a long time. Compliance check the box is not the way to secure your organization. And Mm -hmm. so this fear-based approach to compliance definitely resonated with me. Now, what, what's interesting, Matt, is I, and not to kind of like wax poetic, right? But I've been thinking a lot about regulation and compliance and what that means to different people. And I think to speak to the aspect of you just don't want to do the compliance and say that you're secure, you know, we're compliant and therefore we're secure. That when any regulation or compliance mandate, you know, comes down from really it affects multiple countries, organizations. We have GDPR, we have PCI. We've got every country and every state has their own laws and regulations that impact you, whether from a security perspective, uh, information security, or just from general life, right? There's a few motives that you have to take into consideration. And one is compliance 
generates money and revenue for different people, not necessarily you. In other words, when PCI, uh, you know, PCI is a thing, right? And you might spend money as a company to become compliant, which is making money for a consulting firm, right? There are fines if you're not compliant, which is making someone else money. Now, you'd like to think in a perfect world that the motivation is to make the world a better place. And that's why we have things like PCI. But you also have to take into account that other people are making money from that. And that's true. If you think about it, multiple regulations have that side effect. There's a double-edged sword. They're meant to protect the greater good, but also it can generate revenue for other people. So you have to manage that appropriately, right? And not just say, well, I'm going to put a, you know, go all in on PCI. Think about that. There's other people that might be benefiting from that that aren't, that you're not benefiting from it. It's a cost center for you, right? So how much, I mean, you do have to be PCI compliant depending on the type of merchant you are. Um, but I've just been thinking about that whole dynamic lately. I find it interesting. And it, and it ties into the second point, which is there has to be clear communication and alignment with risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. See, when you build a security program, you're trying to mitigate risk. And if you understand what risks you want to mitigate, what risks you want to address and have clear alignment, then justifying a budget versus your security program becomes easier. Mm-hmm. And if you're back to your point, right? If you're focused on PCI and you're like, okay, I got to do hundred percent of it. Maybe you don't. Yeah. Maybe you it don't is. because the risk profile of your organization doesn't require you yep. or you're okay taking certain risks that you don't implement certain aspects of PCI. This is, we, we talked about this on the, on the last show of last year on, on Paul mm-hmm. security weekly about the basics. And, and I'll bring it up a little bit again, risk assessments and understanding what risk the business is willing to take and not take will drive a successful security program in the long run. That is a key important component. Yes, compliance is a driver, but it's not the final decision point. No. It's up to every organization independently to understand their risk profile, what risks they're willing to take, and then create a security program that aligns to those risks. And this point number two, I think, nails it for me because that's, I think, the part that sometimes we forget is that that alignment with the executive business goals. And I'm not, in years past, and I'm not sure how the multiple changes that have occurred in the PCI uh, standards over the years have worked to address this issue. But I know in years past, we've had conversations where even people who were PCI QSAs, right, would say, you know, I work with some organizations and when they look at the risk and they look at the potential fines that they might get, that's less expensive than implementing that last 10% of the compliance standard. So many organizations are just like, well, if it happens, we'll pay the fine and that's cheaper. Now, I, again, and I'm not an expert in PCI, but I would imagine that there are changes in the PCI standards that have happened over the years to at least reduce or limit that type of situation because that kind of, I mean, in my uh, opinion, that like undermines the purpose of a regulation like PCI, right? It does, but it's still a business decision at the end of the day, which is the point. The business can decide to comply or not comply. They can decide to spend a million dollars to implement a security program that complies or willing to pay the fines if the fines are cheap enough, mm-hmm. it's still a business decision at the end of the day. Now, yes, there's potential financial ramifications. There's um, potential um, trust, a business trust and other things, reputation damage, et cetera, that could happen. But again, 
businesses have to make that decision based on what the fines are. So that may be a logical strategy for some. Mm -hmm. And the last point, which is obvious, which is stay up to date, right? On the latest and greatest, because that way you can adjust your program and your risk model appropriately. Let's say GDPR was the one last year. Everybody had to Mm -hmm. figure out what they were going to do with GDPR. Are they going to comply, not comply? What's the ramifications if they don't comply? So staying up to date is that last piece, um, just to make sure that the program is is aligned to the risk tolerance that the org wants it's, to take. It's interesting. One of the things we talked about last week in our topic discussion on Paul Security Weekly was I asked some of the pen testers, what's that common trait between organizations that have been breached or ones that you've gone in and done a successful you know, penetration test, you define what success is, but you've basically breached an organization. And both, uh, at least two of our panelists on Security Weekly who are pen testers, agreed that it was not maintaining an asset inventory, that the answer was, oh, we're breached. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know we had that system out there, which is why I asked him that question too. And even Tim said it as well. He said, you can't be 100% of the time, knowing everything that you have, there's always that variance or that risk that you're going to have to take because technology moves too fast. To be 100% of your assets, knowing what they are 100% of the time is just not a reasonable expectation. And I think that kind of plays into this last point. If I did, if I were the CIO or CEO, uh, you know, executive security leader, I should say in any organization, that would be something that would keep me up at night being it speaks to your risk equation and compliance and in all of those other things as well you, you can't secure what you don't know you have and it's being identified as one of those number one things that organizations share as a trait across all of these breaches pen tests included in that so i think that's one thing that we need to to get better at um having an asset inventory is is extremely difficult I, from a technical perspective too matt i think it's very difficult Yeah, especially when you think about where technology is going and where it's at. It's in the cloud. It's on prem. Coming from the container space, right? How do you know what containers are very fluid and uh, immutable? Love that uh, aspect of containers, but it also presents challenges. It does. It makes asset management harder because the app is no longer a single thing. It's Mm -hmm. many things. And we've talked about this on on various shows. Mm -hmm. Really difficult to understand where all your assets are and where all those different, um, you know, threat vectors are, which Mm -hmm. drive your risk model. It's it's hard. All right. Next article. Oh, so, you know, I always like to help people kind of identify in their careers, where are the hot jobs? You know, as people look to either enter the security space or, or, or move into different segments, what, what skill sets are hot? Um, so this is the list for 2019. Cloud computing skills are on the top of the list. I think, you know, we, we know cloud computing's here to stay. Uh, lots of organizations looking for resources that understand cloud. Uh, artificial intelligence and I analytical just, I wanna, reasoning are high on the back, list. I want to go back to that first one for a moment. You know, a lot of times understanding cloud is not just helping an organization move to the cloud, but helping them make decisions as to what should be in the cloud and what shouldn't. We just made a decision this morning. We we're like, for a monitoring system, probably not the most cost-effective uh, decision is to put it in the cloud, right? So I think... But you have to understand how the cloud works and what the costs are associated with that are associated with it to make those decisions, which 
again, you may think, well, I need to know cloud so I can help put everything in the cloud. No, you need to help businesses make decisions as to what should and shouldn't be in the cloud. See, in that particular case, data in is free, so it's actually not horrible. It's data out, Mm -hmm. right? And you and I have analyzed aspects of when we publish a podcast, we probably shouldn't do it from the cloud because all that bandwidth out costs us money. It's actually better to send some of these out directly from our infrastructure and through our bandwidth than taking the toll. And that's understanding the the pricing models and and how data moves and where costs come into the the cloud model will actually help you optimize which which apps and which processes should be in the cloud. And and that's exactly why we flipped it was the direction of the data, right? Because the the agents need to communicate with the monitoring server. Um, You know, agent makes the connection or whatever the direction was. I was like, it's backwards. We need to flip it. We need to put the proxy maybe in the cloud, but the local stuff needs to stay here because our costs would just be too high. Right. Yep. And then you see artificial intelligence and analytics. We're going to touch on artificial intelligence again because artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence wins another award uh, in 2019 as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And then the last one, which was interesting, people management, user experience, and mobile application development skills still very high on the list. Mm -hmm. I think that's because... As more and more technology, um, user interface and user experience is important to simplify uh, how people interact with these new applications. The mobile app is still uh, a huge part of how we as humans interact with a lot of systems these days. We all have the mobile phones. We're all using these mobile apps. Those skill sets are still in high demand in 2019. So it's yep. a good, good little list of where, where some of the hot jobs in 2019 will be. Awesome. Um, I'm going to skip the cloud one because it ties into the last one, which is the technology trends for 2019. This is a, it's a pretty long article for folks, but it, it it talks to a lot of different executives across a lot of different industries, asking them what they believe will be the hot technology trends in 2019. So I went through and categorized them all and then kind of ranked them uh, to make it a little easier. Number one on the list is artificial intelligence. Uh, It shows up nine times in this article by nine different people on technology trends in 2019 to watch, right? People are trying to figure out how to leverage artificial intelligence and some of this advanced analytic capability into their products and, and offerings. And so this one shows up a lot. So this one wins the top tier for 2019. So beware, folks. We're gonna hear a lot of AI um, in 2019, uh, believe it or not, security was number two. Six mentions of of cybersecurity and security being something. It, it's not necessarily a technology, but it was a focus area that people felt was going to be important. So, good news for all of us security executives: security stays pretty high on the list in 2019. Is some of the things that need to be addressed and, and will be part of the trends. Uh, as organizations continue to roll out technology. Um, I'm going to point out the the bottom two because I thought it was interesting. Bottom of the list was social media. So social media has dropped way down mm-hmm. in an emerging technology trend. I think it's pretty well established. Mm-hmm. Only one person talked about it. But what surprised me was blockchain had only two mentions. It was the second to the bottom of the list. I was expecting to see a lot more blockchain technology trends in 2019, but it was actually very, very low in this article. And then technology trends and big data 
uh, uh, sit near the top, they're, they're number three, which the cloud one ties into that cloud article, which talks about some of the cloud trends in, in 2019. Um, so that's why I kind of wanted to tie these these two articles together. Yeah, I think you and I have talked, Matt, that blockchain will uh, be coming up more on our radar as it, I, and again, there's a big, we've talked about in the past, the separation between for uh, commerce and currency versus applications in IT and business um, outside of the commerce aspect. So, yep, yeah, but I was I was kind of surprised that it was that low on the list. Mm. Um, and and so from the cloud perspective, again, I think these are pretty well known, but I just wanted to point them out. You know, what we're going to see in 2019, we're going to see multi-cloud. We're going to see more people deploying their assets into not just one cloud provider, but multiple cloud environments. I think we're going to continue to see upticks of both Azure mm -hmm. and Google Cloud. Obviously, AWS is still the leader here, but I think we're going to start to see those multi-cloud environments where Microsoft and Azure start to take in um, a mix of that environment. The other one was AI and automation in the cloud. Again, mm -hmm. tying back to that artificial intelligence, right? AI is winning the, winning the, the, um, mindset here in 2019, but how do you enable artificial intelligence and some of that automation in your cloud provider? So again, tying cloud and artificial intelligence together. Themes I think we're going to continue to see as mm -hmm. we move forward. Um, moving away from lift and shift migration strategy. So this is, this is a maturity one for me in the cloud that, that I think is interesting, right? In the early days, we just said, okay, I have a server. I'm going to take that server and everything on it, and I'm going to move it to the cloud, and I'm going to put it on an Amazon EC2 instance, mm -hmm. one for one, lift it and shift it. Now what we're seeing is actually re-architecture, and I think this is where containers and infrastructure as a service um, and platform as service migrations yep. in this evolution is starting to kick in. Yeah, I totally agree. And we talked about it last year, actually with someone from Microsoft, uh, it said that that's the exact evolution, right? Is not just taking the whole system, but taking the application, putting it in the cloud, and then the next phase, working it into the cloud a little more. So I think we're seeing a more direct migration into the cloud rather than just like picking up your system and putting it in the cloud, which has cost. I think a lot of it is a cost driver too. It is. And you can, you know, platform as a service is actually more cost effective, I think. And as these platforms... Uh, mature and evolve, it's cheaper to buy some of these platforms and just leverage them than it is to try to replicate that through your own IaaS yeah. and a bunch of EC2 instances. I think that's the challenge because yep. that drives up the cost. Yep. And it ties in to a couple more of these trends we're going to see. Um, I'm going to go to the last one first, which is Kubernetes adoption will continue to grow. Mm. So as we're moving stuff to the cloud, Kubernetes has won the orchestration game, folks. And what you're going to see mm. is that continual adoption of Kubernetes, Kubernetes platform services. Uh, all the major cloud providers have Kubernetes-based services for container orchestration. That continual evolution into container as a service like uh, Fargate mm -hmm. and uh, Azure Container Instances that are going to make it easier and easier for organizations to take refactored applications and move them into the cloud without all the overhead of the infrastructure that they had before. And th this is the trend we knew would eventually continue to tick up. 
we're going to, I think we're going to see more of this than 19. And, and that's good for the application space, I think, in the AppSec space. Yeah. I mean, essentially, is it, is it cheap? I mean, this is a kind of selfish question for security. Is it cheaper to just host your application and or containers in the cloud than to host, you know, uh, an EC2 instance and run your application on it? Is there, I mean, is that, there are factors that play into that though, right? Or is it just there cheaper? Are. Yeah, I mean, Amazon's done a pretty good job of estimating this with Fargate. Mm -hmm. um, it's roughly 25 to 30% cheaper mm -hmm. is what they estimate. And that's because what you're doing is you're telling Fargate, I want these containers to run with this much CPU and memory. And they go up and they run. And they run for a period of time. And you're only charged based on that CPU, memory, and runtime footprint yep. versus having dedicated EC2 instances sitting there constantly that may or may not be fully utilized. So their estimates based on some of the work we did with AWS mm -hmm. when I was at Layered Insight is about 25 to 30% cheaper mm -hmm. to run a fully containerized application in Fargate than it would be through dedicated mm -hmm. um, like EC2 instances or something like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the last tip for cloud um, in 2019 is the shortage of cloud computing skills, which yeah, ties back, back into to why cloud computing skills are still in the highest demand right. in 2019. Yeah, because to get that 25 to 30% cost savings, as well as a lot of other benefits, you need to have the right skills to make that migration and maintain it moving forward. And I think that's, that's slowing, in my mind, that's what's slowing adoption. It slows our adoption here at Security Weekly. Because uh, we have to go learn a whole new platform, right? Yes. There's not like a plethora of people that are coming from wherever, out of school or other places that, that have that knowledge because it's so new. Yeah. And and I think this, this I kind of wrapped this all up in, into my pretty bow at the end. It's part of this DevOps movement, right? Mm -hmm. in, in this last article, and I'm not going to get into it because it's a, it's a, it's a podcast explainer. But I think it's important for people to understand the impact DevOps is having not only in cloud, but also on the application. And so any of those executives who really want to understand the power of DevOps and what it's doing to our environments, this last article, which is really a podcast, it, it's going to be a series and it's going to start to explain what DevOps means to the organization. And I think it's a really good way for people to educate themselves on this new technology as we continue to move more and more apps into the cloud environment. Mm. Cool. All right. I think that's it, unless you have anything else. Nope, that's it. All right. Thank you for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly. 